This is what's called a step wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hello and welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show, the world of general practitioners. We'll be bringing you a number of stories around GPs and their evolving role in the world of modern healthcare. From training GPs to administer the right contraception. The pill is, you know, a very well accepted, long-standing, probably more than 40 years, being the most accepted product on the market. But the world has moved on to when the job becomes a bit too much. There's evidence around that says that nurses and doctors are lacking in empathy, that empathy patients aren't being treated in a caring, compassionate way as they would like to. That's today on Think Health. But up first, do you have a regular GP? How long have you been seeing them? Or maybe you don't have a regular GP. Research undertaken by two researchers at the University of Technology, Sydney, has been looking at the relationships we form with our doctors and why some of us stick with one and others shop around. This research is attempting to answer bigger questions about how we interact with the primary healthcare system. Probably I've been seeing the same GP, not very often, but I've been seeing him for 30-odd years. This is Chris. 30 years, wow. Yeah. Mm, how? Gosh, that blows you away, doesn't it? Chris is the mother of three, with two daughters who are 29 and one son who is 23. Is it in Mount Collar or Emerson? No, he's in Asquith. Asquith is a suburb in Sydney's Upper North Shore. And so why did you go there in the first place? Or was oh, it... he was, it, we were new to the area. It was a brand new area and a brand new house. And um, I spoke to my new neighbour. So it was on her recommendation that I went to him. Going to the same GP in Asquith meant every time Chris or one of her children needed to go to the doctor, they were seeing a familiar face. So he knew me, he knew the children. You know, they had their vaccinations with him. When I go to the GP, he always asks me how Claire and Emma and and Ben are. Ben actually goes to him still. Ben being your son? My son, yes. For Chris, seeing the same GP has been convenient. But not everyone has that same relationship. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP or shop around or use multiple GPs. Shopping around is a term that we hear a lot in in our area. This is Richard. Richard Diabru Lorenzo. I'm a senior research fellow at the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation. Richard is one of the people behind this research examining the patient-GP relationship. So what were they going to the GP for? What was happening when they were there? And then what were they thinking was important when they were choosing between different GPs. And not surprisingly, it was kind of split by age. So older people tend to stick with the GP. They have one, they stick with them, and they go to them all the time. They also tended to be people who were retired and lived just outside city areas. What was interesting about those people, though, is they were the ones for whom it was important that they could choose who they saw. 
This is the case for Chris. At the practice she visits, she sees the same GP every time. And that choice is something that really matters. Because even in that same practice, there's a particular GP she doesn't want to see. When I went to that practice on the recommendation of a neighbour, she actually recommended the other GP in the practice. Um, I didn't like him. Um, after a few visits, there was something he did I wasn't happy about, so I changed within the practice. By having this choice, it helped establish two really important things, a sense of continuity and a sense of trust. They're aware of your history, what medications you've taken, what medications you may be allergic to. I mean, I know that you can tell other GPs, but and it's a case of trust, isn't it, building that trust with somebody as well. So I think that's a worthwhile value as well. For many, a strong relationship and history with their GP is important. But for others, it's not as big of a deal. For a lot of people, any GP will do. And so who's going to multiple practices most of the time? It's young people. Young people in Richard's research is those under the age of 34. When was the last time you went to the GP? Probably around six or seven months ago. Within the last year? Uh, A few weeks ago, actually. Was this a GP that you normally go to? I did have a GP that I went to for a while, uh, but when I got older, it it wasn't as practical to visit them because of distance and the cost. Have you ever had a regular GP? Uh, Probably when my mum used to take me, yeah. (laughs) And was this a GP that you'd been to before? Yeah, it's a GP that I've been going to for a couple of years because my old GPs stopped bulk billing. So people who were younger and and thought that being able to access bulk billing, and, and what I mean by that is that they could go to a GP and not have to pay anything out of their own pocket, they were the ones who were going to multiple practices. Yeah, so, so they're the people who, who won't necessarily stick with someone but will just use a different practice every time. Is this somewhere where you're able to bulk bill? Yeah, it is. That's why I go there. I would only ever go to a bulk bill place. Why do you think there's that divide? Because I would still want to have a decent and established Mm -hmm. relationship Mm -hmm. with my GP. Mm -hmm. Why do you think young people are going around more? Is it just because of the bulk billing incentive? So it's hard to say whether this is restricted to just the young people because we we haven't looked at the data in that way. But within the survey itself, we did actually ask people when they'd used multiple practices, why in particular? And the things that we allowed them to choose from were things like, I was away from home, so being on holiday, Um, my practice wasn't open, it was about where I work, or there was something, some other reason that I wanted to see them about. Might be something that people didn't want to discuss with their GP. What we thought was interesting though was that people weren't choosing practices just because they were close by or because they were uh, open at all sorts of different hours. We had thought that those two things would be important, but they didn't actually come up as, as being important in this, in this particular research. Understanding how people interact with GPs gives Richard and other researchers a better indication of how people interact with the primary health care system, and more importantly, how we fund primary health care. 
so that's a body of ongoing work um, led by others at the centre um, and which, you know, will, will continue for a long time, which is just about making sure that we're kind of using our resources in the right way to get the most out of how we provide primary healthcare. And what I mean by primary healthcare is what our GPs do, you know. So when we're going to the GP, are we seeing things being used in the right way? Um, and we've got to make sure that those dollars are being put in the right place so that patients get the right outcomes and the system gets the right outcomes. And so how might they be being used in the wrong way? Um, that's a really good question. And it's one that uh, at the moment, um, there's a lot of effort being spent by um, the federal government, for example, in looking at what's happening with funding and how it's being used, particularly through Medicare, to ensure that there aren't things that are being done that are either old styles of medicine or medicine that just isn't providing a benefit. Richard's research would also provide information into how we should be paying our GPs. So at the moment, we fund GPs on what we call a fee-for-service basis. So every time you go and see your GP, they receive some money. Medicare pays them some money. An alternative might be that GPs are given essentially a bucket of money and told that bucket of money is for you to service a population. And we call that capitation. What that can sometimes do, though, is it might restrict your choice because you're then tied to a GP. So as a patient, you have to go to that particular GP yeah, that has your yeah. bucket of money. Um, and so what this research says is that for some people, having your choice restricted might be really important because it means you don't, you're, you're losing out on some of that relationship. And if that's taken away from you by the way the system is funded, then that might not be a good thing. Using this information in decision-making is important because these changes could have an effect on people like Chris. If her doctor could only see a handful of people and she weren't included in that handful, that could cause some problems for her down the line. I would imagine he'll, like me, be thinking about retirement soon, so I've already given it a thought that there will be a point where I won't be able to see him anyway, so I would need to seek a new GP. But I would always try and find, go to a private practice, not a big medical centre, so that I could build relationship with a GP. So you would be eager to build that another relationship from scratch if you were to move away? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think it'll be even more important as I age and perhaps need the doctor more often than I do. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. I'm Jake Morcom. The pill is one of the most widely known and used forms of contraception, but that is quickly changing. Long-acting reversible contraceptives, or LARCs, are becoming increasingly popular, and according to Family Planning New South Wales, are more than 99% effective. LARCs are hormonal implants and are either administered by a GP or someone who they refer you on to. But research headed by Marion Haas from the University of Technology, Sydney, has found not all GPs are completely familiar with these new contraceptive technologies, nor do they know exactly when to prescribe them. Towards the beginning of the 21st century, I guess some new prescribed contraceptive products were supposedly coming into the Australian market. We started off thinking about two new products, the ring and the patch, which actually 
One was never introduced to the market in Australia. Which one? Uh, uh, the patch was never introduced and here. And what's, what's the patch? It's just a small patch that looks a bit like a square Band-Aid that sits on your arm and that gently sort of infuses in low levels of, of hormones and works very well. But for some reason or other, the pharmaceutical company that produced it decided not to. The pill is, you know, a very well-accepted, long-standing, probably more than 40 years been the most accepted product on the market, but the world has moved on to thinking about these long-acting reversible contraception. And so what was most interesting is that even though we started off thinking about products that turned out not to have a big place in the market, the information we got from the research still was able to inform lots of stuff about the long-acting reversible contraception Mm. idea. So an example of one of these long-acting reversible contraceptives is an IUD or Implanon implant. Yeah. Exactly how effective are they? So there are pros and cons of these methods, and the pros are that they don't rely on any compliance at all. You don't have to remember anything. And the second is that they are very, very effective, very close to 100% effective. And for most healthy young women, there are no side effects at all. The downside of them is that they cost more upfront than the pill, although over a long period of time, of course, they don't cost as much. But that upfront cost is a barrier. It's a barrier that women take into account, but also general practitioners do too. When they think about the woman in front of them, they think, does she have the money you know, to pay upfront for this? And then they do require some additional skills on the part of the general practitioner. So a general practitioner, of course, is very accustomed to writing a prescription. And that's all he or she has to do. And the woman then goes away and it's all up to her. But in the case of the long acting, the general practitioner either has to have the knowledge and skills to insert the implanon or the IUD him or herself or they have to be able to refer to someone who does and there are another couple of steps and another couple of costs that go against this I guess. In terms of how GPs might react to Mm. these new contraceptive technologies by that do you mean how they would then prescribe something to somebody? Yeah, I mean how they would understand the value of them, how they would describe them to women, whether they would recommend them, and then if they would prescribe them. So there are a number of steps I think that GPs and all doctors go through. First of all, they have to learn about them, and then they have to think about, well, who is it that I would think about talking to about this, which sorts of women? And then how would I recommend them? Because that's a very important part of a consultation with the doctor, what the doctor says he or she thinks is the best way to go, and then what the actual prescribing practice would be. So that's what we investigated. And what did you see across the bigger picture? That they did understand these new technologies? Oh, yes. Doctors definitely understand them. The issue was that There is a cost to doctors. I don't necessarily mean a financial cost. I mean a cost in terms of acquiring the knowledge and the time and the experience in knowing which sort of women are going to react in which way to thinking about these different products. And they're so familiar with products like the pill that it's very difficult in a 15-minute consultation to change practice around. 
I mean, they are prepared to on the basis that these are more long-lasting and more effective products, but they also take into account, of course, women's preferences. And women were very much aligned with the pill as something they knew and understood. How do you get to that point of, in a 15-minute consultation, Hmm. determining which contraceptive might be the best? It's a difficult issue. So, first of all, it depends on the GP. So, some GPs are naturally more interested in this issue. They're sometimes the ones, for example, uh, women in in the practice who advertise themselves as I'm interested in women's health issues, so they've done a bit more study or you know have a bit more training, so they're more likely to think broadly. They're influenced by the woman who presents to them, their age, their previous medical history, where they're at in their sort of life cycle and having babies and contraception and that sort of thing. And they're influenced by the preference the woman says, talks about. If she comes in and says, oh, hello, doctor, I'm here for another prescription of the pill, the doctor's less likely to say, oh, well, there's this new product we have here. The doctor's much more likely in a 15-minute consultation, when there might be other things to discuss as well, to say, okay, and just go ahead with that. So we found that doctors who were trained in Australia were more highly trained in contraceptive issues or in prescribing and who had a noted interest in women's health were much more likely to look at the woman and think, well, I might try and change her mind here. I might try and think about what is the best overall here. And to look at the patient characteristics also, Mm. one of the particular research reports, and you gave a hypothetical of three different women at three different points of life. So there was a 17-year-old, a 34-year-old, and a 43-year-old. What is the difference in terms of prescribing them a certain contraception? I think this is changing, actually. So I think not so many years ago, the first choice for a young, healthy 17-year-old would have been the pill. But there is a big push now to prescribe what we call long-acting reversible contraception. And there's a push that's called LARC first, long-acting reversible contraception first. So a GP who is really interested in prescribing well will use a LARC first method. So we'll say to the young woman who's coming for the first time, I'm going to tell you about the most effective contraception we have and begin with those and hope that that leads to a prescription. For the age groups above that, then it depends on where they are in their reproductive cycle, for example. A 34-year-old might have finished her family but might be thinking about another child somewhere. So they'll be interested in a more short-acting reproductive contraception. And that means the doctor has to think about their medical history. Have they had high blood pressure? Do they smoke, etc.? And the same applies to the 43-year-old who is most likely to want continual contraception. And that's where long acting might come in as well. In terms of expanding their knowledge in this particular area of contraception and new technologies that are out there, what is the process in educating GPs on top of everything that they already know and doing that in an efficient way? Yeah. Well, I guess there are two main ways. One is to use face-to-face online education such as really specialist education like that provided by family planning and that's where um, general practitioners and um, nurse practitioners are taught 
to do the insertion in a practical way. The other way is to educate them in a less technical manner, but to try and educate them about the benefits of these new technologies and then provide them with an easy, quick way to refer women to have the actual methods inserted, but not rely on the general practitioner or the practice nurse to actually develop those skills. It's not clear yet, in Australia anyway, which still has a pretty low uptake of these long-acting contraceptives, which one works best. Marianne Haas, Professor in Health Economics at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Have you been to the doctor's surgery lately and felt like you've been rushed through? Or have you felt like your doctor or healthcare provider has not shown you all that much compassion? Well, you might not be the only one. Empathy, or lack thereof, shown by certain doctors and nurses towards patients has been a figurehead of discussion in the medical world in recent years, backed by multiple global health reports and research. Sue Dean, a lecturer in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, spoke to Leah Samaglu about this very issue. Well, I think there are lots of reasons, but first I think it's important to establish that there's evidence around that says that nurses and doctors are lacking in empathy, that empathy patients aren't being treated in a caring, compassionate way as they would like to. So as an educator and as a healthcare practitioner, I think it's incumbent on all of us to accept that that's happening and see where we can address it. Your article does refer to a report from a UK public hospital between 2005 and 2009, but have you found evidence in Australia? Absolutely. Well, the Francis report that you're referring to that came from the UK in 2010, that was a scathing report about a whole area of a health district where patients weren't being treated as kindly and as compassionately as they would have liked. And the recommendations were that the health services were focusing too much on financial aspects of healthcare and neglecting the patient. So that was it's a huge report that is you know publicly available now. There are reports. There was one from a, um, a hospital in Western Australia that came out last year that said similar things. And also in relation to healthcare complaints commissions, which we have in every state, the complaints that patients and their um, support people are making now to health complaints commissions are more complaints are related to community communication aspects than they are to clinical aspects and that's really concerning. And has this been a growing concern in the industry or has it just sort of happened quite recently? No, I think it's a growing concern, but I do think it's becoming more prominent in the sort of general discourse, really. People are starting to talk about it now because there's evidence now. There are lots of reports. There are lots of research articles that have been written, lots of publicity about it. The response to my conversation piece was incredible. People were really, really interested in commenting on and agreeing with what I was saying. How important is it for nurses and doctors to show empathy to patients? Well, that's a very good question to ask me because I think it is the most important thing. I think we need to have nurses and doctors and other people in the healthcare professions that are caring people. They do it because they want to care for people um, and make a difference to people's lives. So I think it's more important than often the clinical aspects are because my thesis is, and of course not everybody shares this, um, that clinical skills and technical skills can be picked up fairly quickly, but you need to develop and focus on the 
compassion and caring aspects of healthcare professionals um, primarily. I think it's very, very important. Is it sometimes, could it be um, put down to a doctor or a nurse being in the job for too long? Could it be sort of... Oh, absolutely. And there's evidence around to support that, that um, burnout is the cause of a lot of the um, lack of caring responses. You know, people stay in the jobs. They have sort of defences of of not being caring because they think that's how they're going to have to get through each day. Evidence is not there to support that, but a lot of healthcare practitioners work under that assumption that they have to protect themselves from getting burnt out. And that's one way that they think they can do it. And could another reason be a lack of, say, supervision or debriefing or counselling or even self-reflection? Oh, absolutely. You're asking all these lovely questions. I think um, reflection is such an important part of being a student when we're we're educating healthcare professionals um, and also in their work. And I think if we concentrate on things like that, getting people to be more self-aware and reflect, that's one way that we can encourage people to be more compassionate and caring. I'm also interested in mindfulness meditation as a strategy for encouraging people to be empathic and compassionate. And one of the ways that mindfulness does that it encourages people to reflect and be in the moment and be non-judgmental and to listen to people Um, and all of those things are prerequisites for us to be empathic. Now consultations have become much quicker with patients with efficiency being favoured over care and detail this is obviously one of the factors. Oh, huge factor, absolutely. Um, and I think that's, again, why it's incumbent on us as educators to make sure that we role model this sort of behaviour to our students and encourage them to maximise the opportunities where they can talk to patients and listen to them and be caring. You know, things like, you know, when they're making a bed or things when they're doing any sort of a procedure for a patient, when they're giving up medication, when they're delivering a meal, all of those opportunities should be, OK, we know you're really busy, but these are fantastic opportunities for you to spend time with your patients and really listen to them and you know provide caring responses. And your article does mention the role of technology um, acting almost as a barrier between the patient and the nurse or doctor. Yeah, I think technology is here to stay and there are some wonderful things about technology and healthcare and nobody would deny that. Again, we have to be mindful that in many instances the technology is creating a barrier between the healthcare professional and the patient. For example, taking a pulse is often now done with a pulse oximeter, so it's a, you know, little technical thing that's stuck on somebody's finger to take their pulse instead of nurses and doctors who used to hold the hand of a patient. One of the things that I'm really interested in is when I was a nurse years ago when I was practicing um, full-time if a patient was undergoing a painful procedure, for example, a nurse or a healthcare person or even a, a relative would hold the person's hand and say, you squeeze my hand as hard as you like to distract you from the painful procedure. Companies now are developing virtual reality you know, machinery, technology to put on people's eyes to distract them from painful procedures. So all of these things sort of accumulate really and they're, they're just being introduced and they distance the healthcare professional from the patients, which I don't think is um, a good thing. A lot of these measures are sort of preventative that you're mentioning um, for students, but what about professionals that have been doctors for 20 years? How can they 
you know, develop their empathy and bring well, it back. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, empathy, um, you know, we learn how to be empathic when we're babies, really. We learn, and a lot of the ways that we learn to be empathic are by looking at people's non-verbal communication. So we need to learn how to sort of read what people are saying and to be able to take notice when we respond in a certain way how it's being received by the patient. And I think by talking about this, by patients saying, look, we're really concerned about this. We're not being treated in an empathic, caring way. You know, I'm going to assess your ability to be caring and compassionate or I'm not going to continue to see to see you as a healthcare professional. And I think talking about it and, as I said, raising the debate is a really terrific way of getting people to change, to stop and think, now, hang on a minute, am I really performing in the best possible, most positive way to my patients as I can, or can I improve? And is this just a sort of experience that is happening in hospitals or is it happening in the wider sort of health community? Um, oh, definitely. I think and... it's, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's only happening in hospitals. I think it's, um, you know, if some of the literature refers to it as the whole of society is becoming more uh, or less empathic. Um, so I certainly don't think it's, um, you know, but, but of course people when they're experiencing problems with their health, they're vulnerable. You know, every patient who comes to a healthcare professional or presents to a hospital is vulnerable and they need that extra, extra care. Sue Dean, lecturer in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2ser.com forward slash think health. And yes, if you do have any questions after today's show, go see your GP. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next time.